Welcome to City Watch on WBAI. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, broadcasting from Jackson Heights today. So each week, City Watch tries to bring you the latest news on the virus and how it's changing our lives. We want to bring you the voices of the powerful and the powerless. And so we'll talk with policymakers and policy experts, healthcare workers, and others who are providing fresh insight into how we're coping with the coronavirus pandemic, how the world around us is changing, and what it's going to look like when we emerge from this crisis. On today's show, I'll have three distinguished guests, starting with our dynamic Congress member, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, followed by Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, and capping off the show with Jonathan Bowles, Executive Director of the Center for an Urban Future. Now, usually we start off with the news of the day, and that's provided by our Celeste Katz-Marston. But Celeste has been bringing us, and she's starting this now, she's bringing us dispatches, collecting stories of the people fighting their way through the COVID-19 pandemic. So here's her first dispatch of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet. The battle against the virus has profoundly changed Americans' way of life. For some, it means death. WBAI is collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm. My name is New York City Councilmember Danny Drum, and I represent Jackson Heights and Elmhurst in the New York City Council. I lost five friends just in one week alone, and it's been very difficult. Um, and I lost one of those people was um, somebody who was very close to me, a guy named Tarlick McNallis, who uh, helped start the St. Pat's for All Parade in Sunnyside, which was the alternative parade to the Fifth Avenue Parade, which banned LGBT people from marching for 25 years. Um, but fortunately... Uh, in 2016, the parade organizers allowed us to uh, march, and uh, in typical Turlock fashion, um, he was allowed to be a uh, formation area marshal and help line up the Fifth Avenue parade. But that's the type of person that Turlock was, is that, um, you know, he um, would put down the sword um, and try to make peace. And uh, he will be greatly missed. Of course, all the other friends that I lost, the five other people, Lorena Borjas, a leading transgender right activist. Um, she was amazing. Father Chaco, the pastor of the local Episcopal Church here. Um, we're going to sorely miss all of these people. It's very difficult for me. Um, you know, I love Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. I came out uh, when I was 17 years old. And the first neighborhood that I knew that had a large LGBT population was Jackson Heights. And now I have the honor of serving as the uh, council member for this area. Uh, and so I've always loved Jackson Heights because they accepted me as who I am. And um, I take my responsibility as a council member very seriously. But as lucky as I am to serve the community, it is hard sometimes when I realized that it was five people that I lost within just, you know, not even a week, um, you know, I broke down a little bit because um, it's also a very personal thing. You know, I've been over to Elmhurst Hospital and I've seen people being pulled in, carried in, lined up outside of Elmhurst Hospital, not being able to get the services and help that they need. And that's very emotional and very draining as well. But these losses are more personal in that sense. So, um, you know, it's been difficult, but um, I'm, I'm honored to be able to represent my community. We are the epicenter of the epicenter of the virus in uh, the United States of America and probably the world. But this is going to spread. People need to take that very, very seriously. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how my friends got the virus. Just take it seriously. Please take it seriously. This virus does not discriminate. It's a killer, and it's very tragic when it happens. In some ways, there's a silver lining in everything, and in some ways, this has really brought out the good in people. 
This community is um, the most caring, the most tolerant, and the most loving community I've ever found. And I get all types of good messages and uh, tweets and phone calls, uh, emails, just encouraging me to continue on and to hang in there. You know, sometimes when you're an elected official, it can be quite lonely. You only hear the complaints. But the good side of what's happened now is that I'm also getting a lot of compliments. So I'm grateful for that. Danny Drum represents Queens and the New York City Council. Stay tuned to WBAI for more installments of New York in Crisis, our coronavirus diaries, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. And that was our Celeste Katz Marston. Please stay with WBAI for more of those uh, ongoing dispatches. As I'm sure many of you are thinking, the days just seem to all blur together right now. And you stop and think, what day is this? Because as we're socially isolating and self-quarantining, it can be, really become a challenge to look ahead and acknowledge that things will get better. And I'm hopeful that they will, even as the immediate horizon seems like it may be a challenging one. So if you're at your computer or your smartphone or you're following the Twitter feeds of our elected officials, there's one that quite a number of people, 6.6 million people follow. That's uh, Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose district spans Bronx and Queens, where I live. She pinned a tweet on March 14th that still stands, urging people, and in particular young people, to stop crowding into spaces. And while the mandates have changed since she posted that, as many bars and restaurants have closed temporarily and some for good, her words still resonate that even if you're healthy, you could still be spreading the coronavirus. So my co-host, David Brand, who's the editor of the Queen's Daily Eagle, caught up with one of our country's most prominent progressive voices to talk about how our country is responding to the pandemic and much more. Here's that interview. Member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you for joining City Watch. Of course. Thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about Neighbors Helping Neighbors. You began to champion mutual aid starting in mid-March. How did you learn about that movement in New York City communities, especially in Queens, where people are doing amazing work? And what does it mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really tried to kind of pride myself in being a movement candidate. And I think that what makes and what we at least try to make different about our service is that we connect people to the idea that um, that movement is not just about electoral politics and what our government policies are doing, but it's also about people's movements. And it's about what we can do right now and ways that we can organize right now to put power directly into people's hands while we also uh, fight for progressive policies. And mutual aid is a really important um, part of that. It has a very rich tradition, both in New York City and across the country. And, you know, it dates back even to some of the most radical um, roots from um, the Young Lords and the South Bronx to um, to the Black Panthers when they started setting up, uh, you know, children's lunch programs, food assistance programs um, in times when policies and either, uh, you know, uh, po policies of, of income inequality or racial discrimination prevented a lot of communities from having access to those kinds of goods. And so in a moment like this, mutual aid can mean knocking on your neighbor's door um, or just talking to folks in your building to see if there are any elderly or immunocompromised or anyone else that could use help, whether it's childcare or running to the grocery store or doing some laundry. We talked to Brian Lair the other day about mitigation with social justice for workers affected by the coronavirus and the economic shutdown. Who is getting left behind in the city, state, and federal level relief initiatives? Well, there's uh, there's quite a few people left behind. I was just even having a conversation um, this morning with, uh, with community leaders in Elmhurst in Queens. Uh, what we're starting to learn, which is unsurprising, is that the communities that are hardest hit uh, by coronavirus are predominantly black and brown. Um, that's where we're seeing disproportionate spikes in fatalities. And that's because inequity is a comorbidity. It is, you know, um, you have communities like East Elmhurst, which is right in the shadow of LaGuardia Airport, where you have all of these fumes coming down that already struggle with uh, diabetes and um, and 
certain, you know, respiratory illnesses um, that, you know, and who are also disproportionately frontline hourly workers. And so all of these things um, are kind of pre-existing conditions in a sense that they elevate people's risk. Um, but in terms of the actual policies that we're seeing, um, you already have the in the inequity of who gets paid leave and who doesn't, whether you're an Amazon warehouse worker or whether you're a grocery store clerk, um, but also undocumented folks um, are, have been sliced out of additional federal relief on in the bill. Uh, additionally, Rikers Island is in New York's 14th congressional district, my congressional district, and we are seeing an absolute crisis happening on Rikers uh, for both incarcerated Incarcerated people and workers. Um, talk talk about more. What do you think of the, what the state and city have done so far when it comes to releasing people from Rikers or stopping the uh, spread of the illness on Rikers? Well, uh, well, first and foremost, you have the most recent action, which is um, the budget that was proposed. Um, by the governor and um, and is on its way to or has, you know, cleared some of those obstacles to passage, which rolls back the bail reform. And in a time right now where we need to fight for decarceral policies, you know, these um, Rikers Island right now is just a tinderbox for coronavirus. Uh, we had, you know, just one case a few weeks ago, and now there are that quickly rolled into dozens, into tens, into uh, potentially hundreds of cases. And um, and in a time when we should be fighting for elderly clemency, when we should be releasing people from low-level uh, arrests, when we should be fighting against cash bail, the state is doing the exact opposite and moving to incarcerate more people and pack these jails in, in, a con in conditions that we already know are coronavirus havens. These, um, these incarcerated people do not, and frankly, a lot of workers do not have access to PPE. They do not have access to adequate soap or hand sanitizer. And in addition to that, uh, ICE detention facilities, in addition to ORR facilities that where ch immigrant children are being held, are also uh, extraordinarily uh, at risk for coronavirus too. So, you know, we have to continue this fight. Um, we have to make sure that we continue putting pressure to release people there's no reason a 90-year-old infirm person should be kept in Rikers right now. It's kind of an interesting moment because the city is gradually reducing the number of people on Rikers, but at the same time, the state is rolling back reforms that on a longer, over a longer period of time, mm -hmm. which would reduce the number of people in city jails. Talk about bail reform, discovery reform. What will be the long-term impact of this crisis? It's almost... I, I don't think that a lot of our elected officials have really quite sunk in. It's really quite sunk in, um, especially on the federal level. It, I don't think that they really understand the magnitude of this crisis. We're talking about 10 million people that just became unemployed in the last two weeks. And those are people who were able to file for unemployment. As we know, these systems are completely overwhelmed right now. Um, and so... I, I, I don't even know if some of these people have the political imagination um, and the political will to really understand the scale of action that we're going to have to take just to keep things, just to get things back to, quote unquote, I won't even say normal. I will just say keep things relatively preserved for everyday life. Um, and what I do think is important, though, is that we should, you know, in the devastation and wake of this devastation, our goal should not be to make things as they were. Our goal should be to rebuild in a way that is more just and makes life better for people um, instead of trying to build up the old old systems of injustices that we previously had. So progressives say this is an opportunity to demonstrate the need for Medicare for all paid sick leave, other progressive economic policies. And yet, right now, the president's approval rating is increasing. We have a moderate governor here in New York State uh, who is basically championing a, a regressive budget, uh, rolling mm -hmm. back some of the reforms that were in the last budget, taking additional power and the power to veto items in the budget. So why aren't voters and leaders right now embracing that more drastic, transformative change? 
Well, I think uh, it's important to, to note that the leadership that we have now has been shaped by decades of austerity policy. Um, and when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And unfortunately, um, you know, one of the big lessons we should have learned from 2008 is that austerity does not create prosperity. We cannot austerity. We cannot cut our way to growth. Um, it it does not work. It only trims our wings and it prevents us from really offering a livable life for people. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the leadership that we have is not entirely new. It's continuing on, on a pattern that they have already had. Now, that being said, I do think that reality is just going to endorse progressive policy uh, the question is whether our leaders are going to recognize that. Um, but I mean, just look at what's happening on the state level. When you have the, you know millions of people filing for unemployment, how can a state possibly, possibly, even with these cuts that Cuomo is, uh, or rather, especially with these cuts that Cuomo is advancing, how can a state possibly offer what Medicaid requires that we offer to people? With this many people filing for unemployment and Medicaid at once, it's just materially not possible. The only way we're going to be able to get those kinds of resources is from the federal government and with dramatic expansion of Medicare that can enroll and cover everybody. So I think, um, you know, I, the question then becomes not is Medicare for all best? It is it is necessary. The question is, are our elected officials going to allow people to die, would they prefer people to die or not have health care than actually guarantee health care? And there are quite a few who will make that choice, which is why we have to fight and support those who push for the opposite. We just have a couple more minutes left, so I want to ask you a couple more questions. Sure. Uh, sh shifting a little bit, you and your colleague, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, sent a letter to the FDA the other day urging them to repeal the restrictions on men who have sex with men from donating blood. What, what made you do that and why now? I mean, first of all, you know, I remember even as a teenager in my high school when, uh, you know, they st first started hosting blood drives and there were all of these questions about people's sexual history. And it was just a blanket ban on anyone um, who, you know, on, on any men who had, I, I believe at that time or depending on who was collecting blood, who had ever had sex with a man um, and um, or at least for the last 12 months. And um, it just seemed so ludicrous to me because it wasn't asking about, um, you know, it, it wasn't asking about testing positive for any sort of illness. There was no medical screening. And frankly, you know, there are heterosexual people with STDs um, and they go through all, you know, th those blood donations go through all the same testing and screening. So the fact that we're just blanket screening people based on their sexual orientation was just clearly a form of discrimination since the time I was a kid. And um, it's always been something that we've been aware of, but you know, in, in this moment when hospitals are in so much need, um, it becomes even more pressing that we lift these discriminatory bans from um, LGBT people from uh, from being able to help. And so, you know, we we applied a lot of pressure. And I do think that the pressure of the moment is even allowing a conservative administration to to hopefully move in the right direction. And we're getting positive uh, traction there. One last question, because we only have a few more moments. How can wealthier people step up for workers, step up for their neighbors right now, especially in your district? You know, I think uh, there's there's a lot of different ways. One is to help fund mutual aid efforts. Um, and also, you know, if you are privileged enough to have a domestic worker, please make sure that you continue to pay any domestic workers that you have through this crisis. If you are able, um, they may not be doing the work, but you can prevent a family from going homeless, from going hungry and so on. Um, I would definitely encourage people to uh, fund mutual aid efforts throughout the city, which are easily searchable. You can just go on Google, search NYC mutual aid, and you can offer a direct aid to, to individuals and also support striking workers. Uh, there are plenty of strike funds and there are just, even in your consumption choices, um, 
if you do not need to order from Amazon, if you do not need to order from Instacart, um, you know, transition to alternative services or just go to the grocery store yourself if you can, um, because those workers currently are trying to organize strikes so that they can get paid sick leave. And so just use your voice, uh, use your positions of power. It's not just about wealth. Sometimes it's about your title or what position you are in um, and decision-making positions you are in to help nudge the needle in the right direction for those frontline workers who really deserve paid sick leave, hazard pay, and uh, PPE on the job. Well, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you for joining CityWatch. Of course. Thank you so much. That was my co-host David Brand with his exclusive interview. You're listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. The rapid spread of the novel coronavirus in the United States is expediting criminal justice reforms that advocates have been demanding for decades. The Intercept reports that at least nine prosecutors are fast-tracking reforms that will reduce the number of incarcerated people who are kept in conditions that can speed the rate of infection, but also to stop new prosecutions of low-level nonviolent offenses. This is just changing the way that people are arrested, the prosecuted, and detained amid the pandemic. I talked with Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez about these changes, and here's that interview. Welcome to WBAI. You took action early on to address the spread of the coronavirus. Tell our listeners what you did and why this was necessary. I was watching what was happening overseas in particular, uh, what I saw happening uh, in China and then in Italy, and it became clear to me that our frontline uh, first responders, our police officers, our corrections officers, um, we're going to be faced with, you know, having to do enforcement actions with uh, people who are going to be sick, and that in the regular course of that work, they would come in contact with these people. Um, these people would then be arrested. They would be sent to central booking. They would be confined in small confined areas, and the majority of um, people who got arrested would be sent back home into their communities for exasperating the situation on the ground. So I, I, one of the first things I did was a, a little bit over two weeks ago now, I said that my office would stop prosecuting low-level offenses and some nonviolent crime in order to streamline um, the, the, and reduce the number of people who would be put in harm's way in terms of both uh, police officers but also in terms of people who got arrested um, and sent to central booking and maybe to Rikers. And I started to take sort of my own uh, mitigation strategies to help reduce the Rikers population from Brooklyn. Historically, you know, Brooklyn has had one of the um, highest number of incarcerated people in Rikers Island, and it became clear to me that we needed to start to reduce the population um, so that uh, the spread would not be as widespread and as devastating as it has turned out to be. So the New York Post quoted a police source saying that you were, quote, giving criminals an invitation to commit crime. How do you respond to that? Well, we, we know that they were wrong. Um, we, we've seen every week so far um, with the coronavirus uh, uh Thing in the city, the city continues to say that crime goes down week after week. We know that people are home, the streets are largely empty, people are teleworking or not working at all. Um, so their prediction um, was faulty. But it also was faulty in terms of public health because we understand that um, a lot of the crime that's committed are crimes committed by people who are poor and in poverty and people who are going to return to homeless shelters and we were just going to spread that disease more and more so it was sound public health but it was also sound um, law enforcement and public safety policy any estimate on how many low-level offenses have not been prosecuted since you made this decision? Uh, 
Well, I think the, it's a lot um, because the police department ultimately has stopped making a lot of these arrests throughout the city, not just in Brooklyn, but obviously uh, my leadership in Brooklyn has helped, you know, give them the reason not to make these arrests. So there's many fewer arrests in general, um, many, many fewer arrests. We've, we've declined to prosecute over 200 cases that came through our um, through central booking um, and the police have also um, been very reasonable and have instead done site and release kind of uh, you know, policies where they've been giving individuals either a summons or a desk appearance ticket again limiting the number of people who have to come to court who have to be before judges and attorneys and, and the entire court system really um, helping to promote public health and public safety at the same time so um, I'm sure it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of cases um, that are not being uh, brought forth right now during this this emergency period. So obviously, all of us are operating differently. Many people are working remotely. Talk a little about how your office has had to adjust to this and some of the measures you've taken. I also, I believe, was among the first DA or probably you know, the first district attorney who started to have my staff telework. You know, we continue to provide essential services um, to victims and survivors of crime. We're continuing to provide assistance to the police department in terms of, you know, execution of getting search warrants uh, written and the things that the police department needs to do to keep us safe. Um, but most of my staff, um, I have over 1,200 people who work in the DA's office. Um, over 95%, it's probably closer to 98% right now, are working from home. There's a skeleton crew, including myself, who come in every day to you know make sure everything is running and to do the court functions that is still ongoing, like arraignments and the special miscellaneous parts, and now these writ parts that are um, been put up to help figure out which people can come out of Rikers Island safely. Um, so there's a small crew, a dedicated crew of about 38. Um, people who come to work every day, and I mean every day, like seven days a week, um, who are keeping it on site, and then the rest of the staff is working from home. But we continue to focus in on vulnerable populations. As DA, I'm very concerned about domestic violence issues right now when people are locked in homes together and there's not easy reporting mechanisms. I've been told the police department are not doing home and wellness checks on some of the known domestic violence uh, cases. So, you know, we're very concerned about certain categories of crime um, going up, although reported domestic violence has remained low and it actually has um, gone down some, we know that, um, that that's a, a tremendously um, big issue for us in Brooklyn. So you mentioned Rikers Island. Uh, earlier, you had uh, you and the other DAs from the other boroughs sent a letter over to the mayor and the corrections commissioner expressing concern about who is being released, noting that a number of individuals who pose a high risk to public safety uh, could be released. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I think the, the goal of the letter was to get some transparency about exactly what the conditions are in Rikers. You know, I hear from the public defenders and from some people who have been released that the conditions in Rikers Island are terrible and that the spread of the virus is ongoing and that there's not testing. So although we hear over you know, almost 300 um, prisoners and inmates have it and over 200 corrections officers, we know that's an undercount. We know that people are not tested. We know people are asymptomatic. We know that people are not, the, the hospital is completely full. And so some people are being quarantined in other parts of Rikers. If they don't have a fever, they're just being left in their cells. People that have other medical conditions, and there's a lot of medical conditions on, on Rikers Island, people of all kind of health challenges are not able to see the doctors. Um, so we're very concerned about, and I, you know, the DAs are concerned. I'm particularly very concerned about what exactly is happening on the island to mitigate the virus. Um, I want to know what protocols are in place for screening and testing, um, you know, people who are incarcerated and the other people entering the facility, whether it's correctional officers or people who are cooks and other people who we employ, are they 
going into the island, contracting the disease, coming back home to our communities and giving it to family members and other neighbors. Um, and I, I don't think the information has been forthcoming. Um, so there's a problem. And then, you know, there's been some releases of individuals um, without notification to victims and survivors of crime. When my office releases a person in court, we make um, notifications to victims and survivors of crime. I am very concerned that, especially in the context which the letter specified domestic violence and sex crimes, that um, people are being sent back into the neighborhood um, and victims are unaware and um, may not have orders of protection and they need to be notified. So those were the sort of you know, concerns that I had with what's happening um, and calling on DOC to be much more transparent in um, what they're doing to uh, keep people safe. We have a constitutional obligation to uh, maintain safe and hum humanitarian um, conditions in our jails. And we know that there's a number of people, and the city has sent the list, that there's a number of people who fall into the, high, the most high-risk categories, right? We know there are people over 60 with health conditions. We know there are people over 50 with a lot of these um, pre-existing health conditions. Um, and then there are just younger people in jail who have you know, asthma and diabetes and all these other conditions that put them at particular risk um, to contracting COVID-19 and having um, a really bad result as, as because of that. What is being done with those people? Um, and, and I think there's a final point that I'd like to make, which is we also understand that not everyone in Rikers Island can be safely returned home to the community. There are people there on homicide charges, on rape charges, on shooting charges, and, uh, and really violent crimes where there's been tremendous victimization to communities. What is the plan for those people? Because I hope the answer isn't that we are just going to release everyone because Rikers never um, got themselves prepared and have the ability to um, you know, mitigate and protect those folks. So those are my concerns, but we are doing um, in Brooklyn a lot of work to reduce the population. Uh, since in the last few weeks, in the last two weeks or so, we've reduced the Brooklyn population on Rikers Island by about 20%. Wow, and you've also been very outspoken about moving to a cashless bail system, uh, the Jersey model uh, where New Jersey had eliminated cash bail. There's been movement among the state legislature over the last few days concerning bail reform. What's been your thoughts on that? Well, I'm disappointed that we couldn't get to a cashless bail system. I understand the politics of it. You know, there, there's two sides. There the there's the side who thinks that any changes to the law was sort of a concession um, that you know there was it was a concession that the prior bills that got passed were um, erroneous and they were afraid that the consequences that that would have towards this, um, making sure that other states would follow the New York model in terms of bail and discovery. Um, I also understand that um, you know that people were very concerned about giving judges additional discretion to uh, um, make decisions about who gets detained. And um, so what was done, I think, is a step that neither side's going to be happy with. The, you know, the law and order crowd is going to think not enough was done. You know, they did not put dangerousness into the equation, so judges still don't have the discretion to hold people in based on being a threat to another person. Um, for the most part. And so that's a sort of a victory for the advocates who were strongly against giving judges the um, ability to, to detain people on the, the dangerousness. But by the same token, they are going to be very unhappy because they added um, a number of categories of when bail can now be sought um, and implemented. So I don't think either side won um, in, in the, the bill, um, but, you know, I, I still stand by the fact that, you know, a fair and just justice system would not allow people who commit the exact same crime for one person to get out 
because they can afford to make bail and the person who's poor um, can't make bail. And you know, I used to explain my, um, you know, why I came to this point from my own childhood. I, I have a, a very vivid re memory of when um, at one point one of our neighbors came to our door and uh, they were asking if anyone could spare money to get her son out of jail and, you know, trying to raise bail. And I remember my mom, um, you know, it was just me and my mom at that point, my mom pulled out like a, a jug of change and handed it to her to, to try to help her get bail. Those kind of things should never happen in New York State. Um, it should not happen in New York City. And what was done still leaves bail in place. Um, so there will still be people who are charged with crime um, who get bail set in. Those who could afford to get out will get out, and those who can't afford to get out will remain incarcerated. Um, so uh, that that's the disappointment. But I understand the political realities that uh, the legislature was going through. You have really strong, um, you know, you have people really strongly committed on both sides, right? You, judges need discretion, and, and we have to have dangerousness. And people who said, no, there should be zero change. And I think they did the best they could do under the circumstances of trying to get the budget passed on time and COVID-19. Uh, but we, there's more to be done on this issue. So I've got just about a minute to two left. And I've been asking every guest that I've had on WBAI recently this question. since. By the time this is all over, every one of us is going to be impacted by coronavirus in some way. We'll know someone who's passed. We'll know someone who's tested positive. How have you been touched and impacted by coronavirus at this time? Well, I've been blessed that my family has been healthy. Um, that being said, um, there's many, many employees of the DA's office that um, have been um, in, um infected, I guess is to say they have caught the coronavirus. Um, there's a number of my um, lawyers and support staff that are currently hospitalized and on oxygen or ventilators. Um, and every day, every day, I learn of two or three people, um, loved ones who've passed away from this deadly disease. And it's terrible. And, you know, for the most part, it's been older people, but you know, of my uh, close friend's nephew is in the hospital, and he's 25, and so it's really impacted everyone, and it's you know been obviously terrible um, for so many people, and you know it's going to get worse, and you know the, the, what we're going to need to do as a city is going to really you know double down on um, staying home. And we're going to have to really protect the vulnerable populations. That includes the people in Rikers and homeless shelters and other places where they can't just, you know, quarantine themselves in their, their homes. And as I wrap up, how can people learn more about your office? Um, the easiest way is our website, brooklynda.org, or just on social media, Brooklyn DA. And we, we try to update it every day. District Attorney Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. All right. Thank you, Jeff. You do not have to follow the news to grasp the extent of this pandemic. If you have ventured outside, you see the impact on every block, all the shuttered restaurants and retailers and many other businesses. The Center for an Urban Future has published four reports that shed light on how this pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis is impacting workers, businesses, and residents across New York City. And the center is making a number of recommendations that our policymakers need to consider. So I spoke with the center's director, executive director, Jonathan Bowles, this weekend, and here's that interview. Welcome to WBAI. So your first report doesn't mince words. It's called a blow to the boroughs. What does that mean and which industries are you talking about? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, we're going to see economic pain all over the city, even in Manhattan. But we found that the biggest impacts by far are going to be in boroughs. And in fact, it's already happening. And the reason for this is that the boroughs are particularly exposed to the industries that are hardest hit in this particular crisis. Uh, restaurants, retail, nail salons, barbershops, child care services. A lot of these neighborhood-based services businesses that are just 
particularly high concentrated outside of Japan. How is this recession going to differ from earlier ones? You know, uh, I think in a few big ways. Um, first of all, you know, a lot of the previous recessions in New York, uh, the, the first impacts were really felt on Wall Street. Uh, you know, Wall Street uh, caught a cold and the rest of the city got sick. Uh, and this, in this case, you know, Wall Street, finance, a lot of other office sectors haven't yet had the biggest impact. They may very well, given what's happening on the stock market. Um, but right now, a lot of office workers are able to work from home. Uh, and the biggest impacts really are in neighborhood bases. So, um, you know, retail and restaurants uh, alone make up 19% of all of the jobs in the boroughs uh, in Manhattan, it's 15%. You know, and that's one of the reasons why the boroughs are so so bad off in this. I'd say one other thing is that in, in the past, a lot of times, you know, um, even if office jobs were lost, you know, tourism, uh, going out and shopping at retail, attending a Broadway play, a lot of times that kind of thing really helped New York get back or at least to balance out the, the pain. Uh, and this time, you can't just go to a Broadway show to help the economy. We can't necessarily get tourists to, to fly here or to come up the coast from elsewhere uh, to spend money in New York. We're all stuck in our homes, and uh, and that's going to be a, a, a real problem this time around. And you're raising some good points. I'm a Queens resident, so I see a number of the industries that you're talking about. I mean, for instance, over 86% of the jobs in repair and maintenance are outside of Manhattan, and many are cutting back hours and closing. What do you think the landscape of New York is going to look like when we emerge from this period? Yeah, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm worried. I'm worried for our neighborhoods. I'm worried for the city's vitality. Um, you know, I live in Queens as well, and and I think most New Yorkers don't grasp just how many jobs there are in these services and retail businesses. You know, as one quick statistic, um, there are 112,000 jobs at retail and restaurants just in the borough of Queens. Um, so, you know, I think that um, sadly, when we come out of this, um, a lot of those small restaurants and retail businesses just aren't going to make it. Uh, there are about 5,000 people working in Queens alone in nail salons and beauty parlors. I think a lot of those may not make it. Um, they're going to be going months without any kind of revenue coming in or very little of it. Maybe some of the restaurants that are able to do delivery will have some. This is going to really affect the bottom line of those businesses. Many of them already were operating on slim profit margins. So I'm very afraid that we'll come out of this and, and not see a lot of those stores that we're used to. And we're talking about stores, but you also raise a really good point in this report about the boroughs outside of Manhattan, that they're at a disadvantage when it comes to office jobs. Can you talk about right. that? Yeah, you know, I think that we don't think about this that much, but I think that right now the boroughs would probably be better off if there was a little more balance in their economies. You know, right now those services, businesses, restaurants, retail, make up such a huge percent of all jobs, whereas Manhattan, like I was saying, there's 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 more balance. In Manhattan, well over 50, 50% of all of the jobs in Manhattan are in office sectors. Now, those jobs not only pay better, but it also kind of adds balance to the economy. It diversifies the economy. In each of the boroughs, no borough has more than 16% of its jobs in office sectors. And citywide, 83% of all office jobs are in Manhattan. So, you know, I think that it's something that not a lot of people think about, but I think um, the boroughs uh, would be better off uh, perhaps for the next time around if there were more office jobs just to add diversity. And you mentioned nail salons, uh, the restaurants. I'm thinking about the small businesses. So if small business owners are listening, can you talk briefly about your other report where you pull together ideas from about two dozen small business owners? I mean, what do they say that our state and city government leaders should really be doing now to support them? I think the biggest thing is that they need help now. This can't wait two months. It can't even wait two weeks. You know, they are really short on cash flow. They're not getting uh, money in the door. So we need the federal and the state and the city uh, emergency funds, these loans. And thankfully, the, the federal government has come up with a really uh, good bailout package that does have a lot of money for small businesses. But we need to make sure that they get that money, that it doesn't get kind of tied up in a bureaucratic application process, that the applications, uh, that enough 
uh, small businesses in New York are actually filling out those applications and that the money is then delivered to businesses as soon as possible. Uh, I think we also need to make sure that immigrant and minority businesses, the folks that may not have access to the same resources or technical assistance as other businesses uh, that may not be as savvy, we need to make sure they're getting all of the information. We need to help them make sure they're filling out the applications and getting the emergency funds as well. A couple other things we heard, and we had lots of great ideas, and, and, and frankly, uh, we're hoping that city officials look at this because there's a lot more that the city could be doing to help our small businesses. Um, one thing that came up from a few of the small businesses we interviewed was we really need to cap the delivery fees from third-party uh, food delivery companies. Uh, a lot of them charge somewhere between 15 and 25 percent uh, to the restaurants uh, for deliveries that they do. Um, and a lot of small businesses, restaurants in particular, were saying, let's keep that to 10% or under in this crisis. Um, a couple other really interesting ideas came up around when FEMA is in New York, and, and inevitably FEMA is going to be here in a big way, let's make sure that they spend their money locally. Let's not, make sure, let's not put all of their dollars for the workers and others into big um, uh, food, food companies. Let's make sure they're spending dollars at local restaurants and other businesses. And we're talking about businesses, but I want to move towards uh, about the people who are affected. Just a few days ago, I talked to the head of AARP New York about the challenges faced by older ad adults amid this pandemic. Uh, the centers reported on our area's growing uh, adult population before. So what are some of the measures experts are telling you that are needed to address their needs? Well, thanks for asking about that, because this is really one of the most, if not the most vulnerable population right now in New York. I think most people don't understand, but we've got 1.7 million people living in New York City who are age 60 and over. There are about 150,000 that are over the age of 85. Uh, so not only are older adults um, kind of succumbing to the virus at the highest levels, but many of them are also... Um, isolated like never before. Many of them were struggling to get access to meals, to medicine, uh, to food, uh, and, and, and other things and other vital services. And so, you know, it's absolutely important that we make sure that the nonprofit organizations uh, that are really uh, lifelines to these older adults, uh, that they have the resources to get out and help older adults and, in, and help them in new ways because senior centers, libraries, settlement houses, the, the kind of organizations that usually – are those places, are those hubs for older adults, they're all closed. Many older adults don't have a computer in their home. Um, and um, so we've got to make sure that the older uh, New Yorkers are able to get access to services, to food. Um, a couple of the uh, folks that we interviewed for our research uh, said that the city really ought to allow these nonprofit organizations to be flexible in how they're spending their contracts. You know, they're not going to necessarily have everybody be able to come in and serve them uh, over meals uh, at, a, at a dining hall uh, or to do one-on-one -on -one, uh, assistance programs. Um, we've got to let these organizations create new uh, online programs that deliver support that also helps make sure uh, seniors aren't so socially isolated right now. Uh, one other really good idea that I think um, we heard about but also I've heard uh, Councilmember Brad Lander is putting in place in, in Brooklyn is to draft the volunteers from the community do food, uh, phone banking for seniors just to reach out and make sure people are okay in their home. We should be doing more of that all around the city. And I've, and I've got just a minute left. I do want to very briefly touch on one other thing. Given the high unemployment rates that we're hearing about right now, you expressed concern, the center expressed concern about the uh, state's signature tuition assistance program. Can you just talk about that briefly? Absolutely. You know, I think in all recessions and probably especially right now, people that are out of work, people that are struggling to put together income, you know, many of them are going to see the writing on the wall that there's not a lot of good jobs coming anytime soon, and they're going to turn to a post-secondary uh, education. They're going to look to get a higher, a higher education degree uh, to better their chances of being employed once the economy does turn around. Uh, but we need to make sure these, these low- and moderate-income New Yorkers are able to get that, able to, to afford tuition, especially given all the kind of economic hardships that people are facing right now. And unfortunately, we found that the signature scholarship program in New York, the Excelsior Scholarship, 
is benefiting extremely few CUNY community college students and few people from CUNY and all, all of their colleges, including the senior four-year colleges. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure – I've got to give the governor some credit for taking on the idea of affordability with college uh, tuition, but we need to tweak that program to make sure more low-income New Yorkers are able to afford it because right now there are some real problems with the program that are prohibiting lower-income New Yorkers from really reaping the benefits. You've got some fantastic reports. Uh, please tell our listeners how they can find them, how they can read up on them. Thanks so much. Well, they can get them at our website, nycfuture.org, and they can also follow us on Twitter at nycfuture. Jonathan Bowles, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. As City Watch comes to a close, I want to thank our listeners today. WBAI is staying on the air through this crisis, even though we're all broadcasting remotely. Our engineers like Max Schmid are in the studio and they're making it all happen. So thank you, Max. And remember, most of us are volunteering our time because we want to continue bringing you non-commercial, non-corporate, progressive radio. So while you're at home, if you could just take a few minutes, consider how nonprofits are hurting and what you can also do to support them. And I also ask you to just take a few moments and, if possible, donate to WBAI. It just takes a minute or two to support us and keep us on the air. You can give as much as you can at this time. Go to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, or you can call 516-620-3602 to show your support. I want to thank our guests today, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who spoke with my co-host David Brand of the Queen's Daily Eagle, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, and Jonathan Bowles of the Center for an Urban Future. And of course, our intrepid WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with the latest news. You should also stay with WBAI because Celeste is featuring a number of personal stories of New Yorkers amid the coronavirus. And these dispatches, starting with New York City Council Member Danny Drum, are incredibly moving. I'll be back next week with Driving Forces at 5 o'clock on Thursday. And then City Watch returns next Sunday when David takes over. Thanks for tuning in, and I wish you the best of health. Mm-hmm.